0: Do you remember the first time you heard about a curse? Do you recall ever having to have someone explain to you what one is? I don't. I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware of them. My introduction to the concept was likely sitting cross-legged in front of the TV. Saturday morning cartoons such as Scooby-Doo, they loved to cover things like the mummy's curse. Or maybe it was the Bible. Cursed is the ground because of you. Then again, it might have been fairy tales. But Meriwether's powers were not strong enough to undo the full evil of Maleficent's curse. The point is, curses are so ingrained in our culture that we don't need to be taught what they are. We know what they are instinctively, almost as though by osmosis. Today, we take a look at two curses whose reputation and legend have grown with the help of the internet. (music) The digital age has facilitated myths traveling faster and further than ever before. Here we explore them and question what they mean to us. I'm your host, Luke Brown, and this is Internet Myths and Legends. Lake Shawnee is an unincorporated territory in West Virginia. It's here, off of a mostly forgotten road, that you'll find the most unlikely thing, Overgrown with weeds and ivy, a Ferris wheel. Its pieces rusting into the ground. A closer inspection reveals swings, dilapidated food stands all left exactly as they were when the park shuttered its gates in 1966. Why would a thriving place be left to fall into the ground? Where did everyone go? According to myth, they're still there. If you listen, you can hear them. Occasionally, you can see them. Lake Shawnee Amusement Park was the brainchild of businessman Conley T. Snydo. In the 1920s, West Virginia had a thriving coal industry. Snydo wanted the families of those working in the coal mines to have easy access to a place where they could relax and enjoy themselves. Snydo purchased the site, building a swing set, a Ferris wheel, and converted the pond into a swimming pool. By today's standards, a pretty crappy amusement park. Initially, when the park opened, crappy as it was, it did very well. But tragedy soon struck. As the story goes, one day around closing time, a mother who had dropped her son off in the morning to play with friends came back to get him. But there was no sign of him anywhere. She looked and looked, but had no luck. Eventually she found him in the pool, face down, arms stuck in a drain. The pool was quickly and quietly drained, then filled up with sand. No one spoke of the death, but another one would soon transpire. A little girl in a pink ruffled dress had boarded the circling swing set. As she swooped around, though, a truck was backing up and Well, the girl died instantly. The legend claims that in total, six children lost their lives at the park. Although apart from the two mentioned deaths who don't even have dates and names attached, the other four are an even bigger mystery. No details tied to these deaths can be found. With the kitty corpses piling up, a rumor of a curse began to circulate. Understandably, parents became reluctant to drop their kids off for a day of fun. The park had no option but to close in 1966. Today, the only visitors to the park are ghost hunters. Frequently, they report disembodied voices following them while they explore. Occasionally, they claim to cite childlike figures occupying the highest positions on the Ferris wheel. But the most common paranormal sighting is that of a young girl in a pink ruffled dress covered in blood. Legend has it that in addition to the aforementioned encounters, there are other spirits present as well. When sighted though, these others are dressed in a manner that indicate they're from a time long before the 1960s. A documented tragic history the site dates back long before the amusement park. It's the sort of history that film and TV would use to explain the terrible fortune of the park. It's this history that has led to the myth of a curse. The land that the park was built on belonged to the Shawnee tribe for countless centuries. But in 1783, a family of European settlers, led by Patriarch Clay Mitchell, arrived displacing the Shawnee from their traditional lands. One day, Clay Mitchell went hunting, leaving his two sons and daughter to do chores on the farm. While the children worked, a group of displaced Shawnee tribe members crept onto the land. They shot one of the boys dead. The daughter struggled with one but was stabbed to death. The Shawnee took the surviving son prisoner. When Mitchell returned home, he found nothing but blood and death. Vowing revenge, he gathered a party of men who pursued the Shawnee tribe killing several of them in the process, but not in time to prevent his son from being burned at the stake. Following the bloodshed, a despondent Mitchell packed up and moved away. Curiously though, the Shawnee people made no move to reclaim their now vacant territory. Instead, an uneasy peace settled over the land for more than 100 years. It remained that way until Snydo purchased it to build his park. 30 years after Snydo's failed attempt, A man named Gaylord White purchased the land with the intention to reopen the park. When his efforts failed to bear fruit, he decided to develop the land for real estate. Early on in the process, one of the developers called him. They'd made a discovery. What the developers had found was, fittingly, a child's skeleton. This unexpected discovery prompted an archaeological dig. In total, 13 skeletons were found, most of them children. Archaeologists concluded that it was once probably a burial site for the Shawnee tribe. In all probability, there were likely hundreds more corpses buried there. Out of respect for the deceased, Gaylord had the development halted. Today, the property sits as it has since 1966. Slowly rotting away and serving as inspiration for ever-growing myths about the grounds. While I love a good haunted amusement park built on a native burial ground story as much as the rest of the Scooby gang, the details of this story are frustratingly vague and fluid. People who claim to be authorities often provide conflicting histories. Most of their knowledge comes secondhand as there's a dearth of historical evidence to support the darker claims of the park's history. But we don't love this story and others like it for their accuracy. Before we ask why though, let's look at our next myth. Ladies and gentlemen, James Dean. We asked Jimmy over today because he's a racing man himself. A real one, not a crazy one. We probably have a great many young people watching our show tonight, and for their benefit, I'd like your opinion about fast driving on the highway. Do you think it's a good idea? People say racing is dangerous, but I'll take my chances on the track any day than on a highway. Do you have any special advice for the young people who drive? Take it easy driving. The life you might save might be mine. You know? <laughs> 13 days after recording this PSA, James Dean would be dead in an automobile accident. Yes, life in its every emotion leaps from the pages of John Steinbeck's best of all his best bestsellers. In September of 1955, James Dean had only released one film, East of Eden. While few outside of Hollywood were yet aware of his existence, studio executives were convinced that they had the next giant movie star on their hands. Tap new sources of talent. Create new stars. James Dean as Cal. The Understandably, they didn't want their up-and-coming star to engage in any reckless behavior. Behavior that could disfigure his looks or cause production delays. Executives were especially concerned about his passion for race car driving. A hobby which Dean had taken up that spring. To protect both sides, they placed in his contract a clause that strictly forbid him from driving race cars. Off-contract was a different story, though. Dean was free to do as he pleased. Immediately after completing his filming commitments for Giant, Dean purchased a limited-edition 550 Spider Porsche, an especially hard car to come by in North America. Dean called upon George Barris, who later gained fame as the designer of the Batmobile, to have it personalized. He chose tartan seats, had the number 130 emblazoned on the hood, and the name Little Bastard, which Dean had christened the car, painted just under the Porsche emblem on the engine cover. Dean was eager to show off his new purchase. He'd enthusiastically extolled the virtues of the car to anyone who would listen. The 550 Spyder could go from zero to 60 in seven seconds, reaching top speeds of up to 150 miles per hour. When people heard these facts and then saw the car, they became concerned fearing it was too much car for Dean. One of those people was actor Sir Alec Guinness, who had an encounter with Dean on September 23rd. There in the courtyard of this uh, little restaurant was a, I don't know what the car was, some little silver, very smart thing, all done up in cellophane with a bunch of roses tied to its bonnet. And some strange thing came over me, some almost different voice please do not get into that car because if you do and I looked at my watch and I said if you get into that car at all it's now Thursday whatever the date was uh, 10 o'clock at night and by 10 o'clock at night next Thursday you'll be dead if you get into that car. Exactly one week later. James Dean, 24, one of Hollywood's brightest new motion picture stars, was killed in the early evening of September 30th in a head-on collision. Following the accident, Little Bastard was written off by Dean's insurance company. The wreck was then sold to Dr. William F. Eshrid for $1,092. The most valuable parts of Little Bastard, the engine and the drivetrain, were salvaged from the carcass. Eshrid incorporated these parts into two other cars. It's here where the curse theory begins. Eshrid and friend Troy McHenry were both racing against one another in cars that had parts from Little Bastard when McHenry lost control and hit a tree, killing him instantly. Eshrid, while luckier, was still seriously injured when his car suddenly locked up and rolled over while going into a turn. Shortly after Eshrid's accident, he desired to rid himself of the grisly reminder. He found an eager taker for the mangled remains of Little Bastard and George Barris. While being unloaded at Barris's garage, the remains of Little Bastard slipped off its trailer and broke a mechanic's leg. Little Bastard's two rear tires survived Dean's accident unscathed. Barris, having no need for them, sold them, but not long after, both blew out simultaneously, causing the new owner's car to run off the road. Word spread that the car James Dean had died in was being kept in Barris's garage. This caught the attention of two trophy-hunting thieves, One of the thieves' arms was torn open trying to steal the steering wheel, while the other was injured trying to remove the blood-stained tartan seat. Due to the never-ending bad luck that befell those who came into contact with the little bastard, Barris decided to hide the car. But before he could put this plan into effect, the California Highway Patrol reached out to him. They wanted to do a traveling highway safety exhibit. In what would be a better centerpiece to the exhibit than the vehicle that killed the now-extremely-famous James Dean? After much pleading, they convinced him to lend them the wreck. Surely this would help save lives. What could possibly go wrong? The first exhibit was unsuccessful. The garage that housed the car caught fire and burned to the ground. Mysteriously, the car suffered virtually no fire damage. The next exhibit was at a local high school, but that ended abruptly when the car fell off its display and broke a student's hip. In fact, falling off of secured places became a trademark of Little Bastard. Twice, while traveling between exhibits, it somehow managed to become loose from its secured position and fell off the transport trucks carrying it. Fortunately, no one was injured in these accidents, but a third incident wasn't as lucky. During transport, the truck carrying the car lost control, causing the driver to fall out. If that wasn't bad enough, the driver was tragically crushed by the car after it fell off the back. By 1960, the California Highway Patrol had had enough. The allure of the movie star's death to raise awareness about their cause, while massively successful in many ways, was not worth the unending suffering that accompanied Little Bastard. Abruptly, the exhibit was terminated. The last planned voyage for Little Bastard was to be a simple return trip to Barris' garage. Barris intended to put into effect his plan to hide the cursed car from the public. On the day the vehicle was set to arrive, Barris waited and waited and waited. Same the following day. But Little Bastard never made it. The wreckage in the truck hauling it mysteriously vanished. In 2005, for the 50th anniversary of Dean's death, the Volo Auto Museum in Illinois offered $1 million to anyone who could prove they had in their possession the remains of Little Bastard. To this day, no one has claimed the prize. Is it because they fear revealing the car would result in more lives lost? Or more simply, and less fun, is everything surrounding Little Bastard just a myth? So why does the internet have such a fascination with these and other curses? Apart from the obvious fun of telling the stories, cursed places and objects do two things. First, they relieve us of responsibility. When we believe the park grounds or the car are cursed, then it's not anyone's fault when something terrible happens. These things happened because an external force wanted you to suffer. And there's nothing you could have done to change the outcome. Not even common sense things like, have a lifeguard on duty, don't back your truck into a swing set full of kids, or don't drive a race car when you're not trained to do it on regular roads with run-of-the-mill drivers all around you. It's similar to when we fail a test and find an external reason to blame it on, such as there was a noise that wouldn't let me focus, instead of accepting responsibility and just admitting, I was too busy scoring acid last night to study. Or when you're a new driver and you crash your mother's car into a telephone booth because the manufacturer placed the reverse and forward functions too close together. Mom, we should sue them. I could have died instead of, I was tripping balls and just screwed up. Much of the time, we screw up with no consequence. So when there are consequences for our mistakes, we often attempt to skirt the responsibilities instead of recognizing that in the past, when we have gotten away with it, we were lucky. We're just not willing to accept that it was our wrongdoing that led to the harm because the truth stings. The second reason. Curses punish those who think they're above the rules. In film and TV, those that refuse to recognize a curse, they're the ones that are hit by it. The perpetrators in these stories don't suffer unknowingly either. Is there anyone who thinks for a moment that Conley T. Snyder wasn't aware of the ground's brutally one-sided bloody history? Or that the people who stole, bought, and sold pieces of Little Bastard as Morbid Trophies didn't know better? Either way, the truth about curses is much darker than the Scooby gang has led us to believe. Scooby always told us curses were someone under a sheet trying to scare us for their own selfish reasons. And I'd have done it too, if you kids hadn't come along. When in fact, they're actually the source of indifference. Indifference to doing what's asked of you? indifference to the rules and common sense the rest of us follow. Ultimately, they tell a good story. And that's enough for a legend or myth to persist. Internet Myths and Legends is written, produced, and performed by myself, Luke Brown. Story editing is by Victoria Adam. Thanks for tuning in.